Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. The White House defends not disclosing all information immediately about classified documents found at President Joe Biden's home and former office, saying withholding some information may be necessary to protect the Justice Department's investigation. We'll hear from the White House press secretary in just a moment. President Biden meets with the Prime Minister of the Netherlands in the White House Oval Office, with the president trying to get the prime minister's help to curb exports of advanced computer chip technology to China. We'll talk about it with a Politico Europe technology reporter. The two leaders also discussing more aid to Ukraine and its war with Russia. Great Britain and Poland announcing they'll be sending modern tanks to aid Ukraine's offensive to recapture territory from Russian occupation. U.S. lawmakers speak about U.S. politics at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. And the new governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, takes office. This from CNN. The White House offered its most robust, if still extremely limited, explanation of why it has repeatedly released incomplete information about classified documents located in President Joe Biden's private office and home insisting Tuesday that protecting the Justice Department's investigation means restricting which details can be released publicly. Ian Sams, a spokesman for the White House Counsel's Office, said, I understand that there is a tension between protecting and safeguarding the integrity of an ongoing investigation with providing information publicly appropriate with that. He said that as the Justice Department and now a special counsel investigates the matter, it was natural some information would evolve. That reporting from CNN. More questions about this to the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, at her regular news conference. On Friday, you stood here, though, and were asked about this documents issued by our counsel 18 times. At that point, the president's lawyers had found these five additional pages of classified documents. So did you not know on Friday that those documents had been found when you were at the podium? Or are you being directed by someone to not be forthcoming on this issue? I'm, I have been forthcoming from this podium. What I uh, said yes to was what the statement at the time that we all had. Right, you all had the statement, uh, and I was repeating what the what the uh, council was sharing at that time. Right, and had, so we had that statement, so we knew what was in it. But you also exactly. knew. Did you not know that? The I'm telling you, I just answered the question. I just said that I was repeating what the information that we had at that time, right? That you all had. I was confirming from what the special counsel had provided to all of you, and that we knew as well from here. So just to be very, very clear, uh, and look. I've also been very clear about being prudent from here. I was also being very clear about being consistent from here uh, and not going uh, beyond uh, what is currently happening, right? And again, this is an ongoing, I also said this was an ongoing uh, review that was happening with the Department of Justice and as we know with the special counsel, I've been very consistent about that as well. Uh, And that's one of the reasons, your question to me is one of the reasons why I'm, I, we are being very, very careful and very mindful and to not interfere here uh, and to make sure, to make sure that the Department of Justice has their independence. Your question actually proves that and that's why we're going to continue uh, to refer you to Department of Justice and refer you to the special counsel or my colleagues at White House counsel. Does President Biden have confidence in the way his team is handling this with this trickle out of information and the documents being found day after day? I can tell you this, the President has confidence. I can tell you this, that the president and his team 
uh, rightfully took action when they learned that the documents ex existed. They reached out to the archives. They reached out to the Department of Justice. That is the steps. We have been very clear about that, the steps and the process uh, that we took here. Uh, and, uh, and look, we're going to continue. We're going to continue to, uh, uh, as we have said, fully cooperate with the Department of Justice. We're going to fully cooperate uh, with the President's team is going to fully cooperate with the special counsel. That does not stop, and that will just continue. Again, we are going to uh, respect the independence of the Department Would of Justice. Would you describe his mood to us and the conversations you've had with him on this his, issue? His mood has been very clear. I, I saw him this morning. He's very focused. I, I was with, I traveled with him this weekend. He wants to make sure that he's continuing and we are continuing to deliver for the American people. And uh, we've been, you know, we've been con pretty consistent on that. If you think about last week, you heard from him about his, how his economic plan is working, how we have seen uh, inflation go down for six months straight, how we have seen uh, unemployment numbers at its lowest level in 50 years. Uh, that matters. That is also the things that this country, the people in this country are also very, very concerned about and want to hear what this president is doing every day. That's his focus, and that's what he's going to continue to talk about. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre with reporters in the White House briefing room. Even as the Justice Department's special counsel is starting work in this case of classified documents found at the home and former office of President Biden. U.S. House Republican majority has begun at least two investigations of its own. The House Judiciary Committee looking at the Justice Department's actions. House Oversight Committee focusing on who may have had access to the classified documents in the unsecure locations and the possible effects on national security. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, taking reporters' questions today on Capitol Hill. The White House is calling out Republicans as hypocrites in terms of the reaction from Biden's classified documents to Trump. What's your reaction to that statement? And also, do you see a difference in the two um, investigations? Look, I, I see from an aspect of how it's treated. And the one thing you always want is um, fair justice in America. So let's just put it on its premise that um, the past president, President Trump, had documents that he was his lawyers were talking with. The archives knew they were there. They actually asked to put another lock on it, so it was behind lock. At any time, they could have walked in and grabbed it. No, they had the FBI come and raid Mar-a-Lago. It was all public when it was taking place. They knew it was going. Now we have a current sitting president that had gone on 60 Minutes criticizing President Trump for what he's done. We had all the Democrats attacking. They even put a special counsel prosecutor to go after President Trump by this. Before the election, they found out President Biden had these documents, not under lock, a simple push of a button that could open a garage door that every American has and knows what happens when how people get robbed mainly by going through a garage door makes it quite easy. Prior to an election, they kept it secret. At no time did he get raided by the FBI. At no time did they come forward and say who was there could actually see these documents that are sitting in the garage behind a Corvette said it was, this is all we had, but we find time and time again. They put a special prosecutor only asking other people raise the issue, but are the same amount of agents investigating this that are investigating President Trump? Is the same um, push behind it? It just does not seem fair. This is why the American people get so upset and distrust their government when they see that the law is not applied equally 
And, and why is somebody doing this? Are they going after somebody because they politically disagree with them? They feel they're a political opponent? That's what's wrong in this system. And this is why there's such hypocrisy behind the Bidens once again, something big that comes forward prior to an election where they kind of keep it quiet, where the American public could actually have a say in it. Did you have concerns though, that Trump actually had the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago? You're obviously concerned. Oh, about I, look, I, I, have cons I have concerns when any um, classified documents are anywhere outside. Look, I deal as a gang of eight inside a skift. I don't take documents out. A president's different to bring forward. But the one thing I, I, I will say here, too, is a president who just left office is not the individuals who's packing up their boxes, who's not moving them. Um, so how much does he even know in that process and others? And did you have to have an FBI raided at any time the president would have lawyers provided it to them. But it's interesting in the raid of Mar-a-Lago, did they just go to where they knew the boxes already were? Or did they go through the former first lady's clothes? Did they go through his son's area? What have they done? They haven't even gone into the garage. They let some attorney do it for Biden. So it's not a fair process when you equalize this out. And that is what is wrong with the system. And is it right that Garland should even be in charge of this? Look, the House, we have a constitutional uh, responsibility to oversee the Justice Department. And that also means overseeing the special counsels. So we will look into both situations. So both investigations? Yes. 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 Was it, I mean, what do you think of the special counsel? Is he the right person? for this job, or do you have concerns? Look, I, I don't know enough. It, it, it's just interesting to me when, when they select someone, they, they always have ties to someone else. They have a very big department there. Uh, I, I would want to make sure anytime you're going to deal with a situation as serious as this, um, that you can have some fresh eyes and, and, and a non-biased. And I, I'm not saying someone's biased, but it's just interesting to me that it seems like they've worked on cases before that could be on one side or another, how it comes out. I don't know. I don't know any of that. But I, I, I would just hope whatever comes forward, you want the American public to trust the final um, answer. That's why the House will oversee and look at um, these investigations as well. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, speaking with reporters today on Capitol Hill. The House and Senate are not in session this week, but House Republican leadership meeting to finalize committee assignments for members of their party. And Speaker McCarthy today confirming that Congressman George Santos, Republican from New York, who is facing some calls to resign over lying about his resume and alleged campaign finance violations, will be receiving committee assignments. And this from TheHill.com, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, and Congressman Paul Gosar, Republican of Arizona, are set to get committee assignments back after being stripped from their assignments in the Democratic-controlled Congress in 2021. The drama two weeks ago surrounding the election of Speaker McCarthy made news worldwide. And today at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, Two U.S. House members on a panel asked about what it means for the legislative agenda. You'll hear from Republican Maria Elvira Salazar of Florida and Democrat Mikey Sherrill of New Jersey. The moderator is Borga Brenda, president of the World Economic Forum. We know that it took a little bit of time before David um, you, you chose the new speaker uh, of the House. Uh, so it, a couple of days or, or, or whatever. What, what, what has that 
led to in the caucus, the GOP caucus. Has it changed anything? Is something uh, broken? Do you think this can be reconciled? Uh, do you think this will uh, lead to a different GOP in the, in, in the House uh, in the two years to come? Listen, it was three days. We were very tired, very frustrated. But I can say to you at the end that democracy worked. Democracy is messy. It's not always pretty. It's frustrating. Hey, Matt, during the founding father years, Madison was fighting with Lincoln and Lee, I mean, not Lincoln, with uh, Hey, you know, during that, creating the Constitution, things were. A few were years not, ago. Hey, yeah, like, you know, like 250 years we'll ago. There's still plus. slavery around. Sure, but, you know, the, the founding fathers just didn't like each other that much. But look what the nation they created and the Constitution they put together. So we're still. We're still experiencing, and I was there, so I, I want to share with you an anecdote. I, you can still see the American exceptionality coming up and flourishing. The, the Republican Party under Kevin McCarthy is a new one, because what he proved during those three very torturous days is that every faction within the GOP on the floor of the United States Congress is going to be heard including the, the freedom, the, mo the, most, uh, the most radicals, the most conservatives, including the moderates and the ones who are in the middle. And to the so everyone on the GOP is going to be heard. And we've had many conversations after those three torturous days that proves that we are going to be able to work in a bipartisan fashion. And I'm going to make sure that I'm going to be one of those voices. No, I, I think we, we don't envy uh, Kevin McCarthy to, to keep no, that no. group together. I, I think that's going to um, uh, be challenging. But uh, turning to you, uh, Congresswoman uh, Cheryl, you, you saw what was uh, unfolding for those uh, three days. And I started to ask Senator uh, Kunz how he sees the possibility to get things done both uh, in the House and in the Senate in the two uh, years to come. Do you think that, will, that process will have a lot of impact on the environment for getting things done uh, in the House? Well, I think what we saw was there are really two ways this could go. Um, and one is somewhat dire for the country, and one is really hopeful. Um, and by that, I mean, what we've seen over the, the past several Congresses, and this is not new, is a reluctance for a speaker to work with members from the other political party. So what I would have loved to have seen in this event, instead of reaching out to the very extreme members of the far right, if Kevin McCarthy wanted to strike a deal with the moderate members of the Democratic Party. That's not something he did. It's not something, quite frankly, Speaker Pelosi was wont to do, reach across the aisle. Um, and I think as we've seen the nation pushing us ever more towards moderation and towards bipartisanship with these tight, tight um, groups of people. I mean, the Senate was 50-50 was in the last cycle. We had a very slim majority for Democrats, now a very slim majority for Republicans. The nation's pushing us towards moderation. And yet, when you don't have speakers reaching across the aisle, you have them beholden to the extremes of the party, which is, I think, bad for the country and bad for the moderate center. So if McCarthy chooses to continue moving forward with these extremists, you know, I'm very concerned about the debt ceiling and what that might mean for our ability to raise it. 
Um, however, I think there will be opportunities for all of us in the House to work together um, to make sure that the, the must-pass legislation gets passed. And, and I think that could be really good for Congress and really good for the country. Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill, Democrat from New Jersey, and before that, Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar, Republican from Florida, on a panel at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, talking about the U.S. political landscape. There were three U.S. senators and two U.S. governors on that panel as well, both Republicans and Democrats. This is Washington Today. Back in the U.S. in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, inauguration of a new governor. The Pittsburgh Youth Chorus performing the official state song as Democrat Josh Shapiro takes office. He defeated Republican opponent Doug Mastriano in the November election, 57% to 42%. Doug Mastriano was endorsed by former President Donald Trump and supported the unsupported claims of election fraud in the 2020 presidential election. Here is Governor Shapiro. From God's country to Gettysburg, I heard you when you said you want good schools for our kids, safe communities, and an economy that gives people a shot and lifts them up. You also sent a clear message. Democrats, Republicans, and independents, when you came together to resoundingly reject extremism here in Pennsylvania. Together, together, hope defeated fear. Unity triumphed over division. We proved together that we value our freedoms and that we are willing to do the hard work necessary to protect our fundamental rights. And to those who didn't cast a vote for me, I heard you too. And I will do my best every day to be a governor for all Pennsylvanians. But right now, now is the time to join together behind the unifying strength of three simple truths that have sustained our nation over the past two and a half centuries, that above all else, beyond any momentary political differences, we value our freedom, we cherish our democracy, and we love this country. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, Democrat, at his inauguration today in the state capital city, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Now to the White House. This story from Reuters. President Joe Biden met Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte on Tuesday, a day after the top Dutch trade official said the Netherlands will not summarily accept new U.S. restrictions on exporting chip-making technology to China. The United States in October adopted sweeping measures to hobble China's ability to make its own chips. And U.S. trade officials said at the time they expected the Netherlands and Japan to implement similar rules soon. The Netherlands' largest company is ASML, holding a key supplier to the semiconductor industry. Prime Minister Ruta told reporters on Friday he did not feel pressure from Washington to adopt more restrictions on semiconductor exports to China. That reporting from Reuters. Coming up in a couple of moments, we will talk with a reporter about this. But here are the two leaders in the White House Oval Office. There was also a lot of discussion about supporting Ukraine in the war against Russia. Well, Mr. Prime Minister, it's great to see you again. We've been in many, many meetings together, but 
It's good to have you here in the Oval Office. And you're welcome, despite despite the World Cup match. Yeah, sorry. Despite of that, uh, you know, you're one of our strongest allies and personal friends, and been a great, great personal ally as well. Together, we're stepping up our protection for democratic values across the world, and uh, and we're, you know, uh, including standing strong with Ukraine. We're very, very stalwart, and we look to you as well. To, sure we have a coherent European response, all Europe response to Ukraine. And uh, Russia is just uh, continuing to act in ways that are almost unbelievable. Brutality is this <clears throat> Together we're promoting human rights and the rule of law. And uh, we're going to be co-hosting uh, the next summit of the, of the Summit of Democracies in March, which uh, we'll be together again. And, uh, there's a lot that we have to work on together. Uh, and uh, together we're working on uh, how to uh, uh, keep a free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, and uh, quite frankly, uh, meet the challenges of China. Simply put, our companies, our countries have been so far just lockstep in what we've done in our vision for the future. So today I look forward to discussing uh, how we can further deepen our relationship and securing our supply chains to strengthen our transatlantic partnership. And thank you again, Mr. Minister. We've had a great relationship with all our countries personally, and I look forward to discussing a lot more in detail. Thank you. Thank you so much. And also, thank you for hosting me. It's the first time in my Fire, five visits yeah. that the fireplace uh, is on. Um, and uh, typically, I would start with the economy, and then I would have told the press that we are the second biggest investor in the U.S. United States is the biggest investor in Europe, but I think we should talk Ukraine. And you've seen this terrible footage coming out of the Nipro this weekend, where innocent children, men, and women, again, were in a rocket fire. This apartment building was hit and many people died. Uh, these are horrible pictures, and I think it, it strengthens even more our resolve to stay with Ukraine. And I want to commend you personally and the United States for your leadership. I'm convinced that history will judge that in 2022, if the United States would not have stepped up like you did, that things would have been very different at the moment in the fight between Ukraine and Russian aggression. And uh, we have decided to spend another two and a half billion on yes. helping Ukraine war efforts. If you compare that to the size of America, it would be over 50 billion dollars, 15 billion dollars. We uh, have the intention to join what you are doing with Germany on the Patriot uh, project, uh, so the air uh, defense system. Uh, I think that is important and we joined that. I discussed it also this morning with uh, Olaf Scholz of Germany. Uh, and then on accountability, we can never accept that uh, Putin and Russia get away with it. So accountability, uh, to take them to court, to make sure that this all gets done in also in a legal way is crucial. And I know that you and I are working on this, but again, uh, your leadership, United States, you personally, has been crucial. So again, I want to thank you for that. And let's stay closely together this year. And hopefully, things will move uh, yeah, forward in a way which is acceptable for Ukraine. They've done so much. And this year will be important. So yeah, again, thank one of the things, if I just add very quickly, Europe continues to step up, respond to the Russian action. There's more to do, and uh, we uh, 
have to stay together at this point. It's really, really, really important that you've been there every single step of the way. So thank you. Sir, what Thank you. With more on the Dutch Prime Minister's meeting in the White House Oval Office with President Biden, specifically their talks about computer chip technology exports to China, we're joined on the phone by Peter Hock, a technology reporter with Politico Europe. Thank you for being with us. You wrote before the meeting that the U.S. needs the Netherlands on board on this issue, but they may not be there. What do we know now after the meeting? Um well, that's, that's, that's early to say, of course, because um, it's a very sensitive topic and, and um, both Biden and, and Rutte, are not, Rutte, which is the Dutch prime minister, um, are not very eager to, to share a lot about this. Although there was a, a short interview from Rutte with um, a Dutch TV program um, in which he said, and that was quite interesting, that um, it's, it's very important to differentiate different uh, sorts of chips. He said, like, you have the basic chips for, for example, cars and refrigerators, and then you have the more advanced, high-quality chips, he, 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 he named them. And then he said, like, okay, it's very important that these high-quality chips, the very advanced chips, that the lead on that, the leadership on that, uh, remains in the West. So that was quite, quite a telling line. Um, that he delivered there. When discussing this issue, we mentioned that there is a technology company in the Netherlands that is a dominant company in this field. How big of a company in the Netherlands is it? How important is it to that country? Well, I would say that it's not only an important technology company in the Netherlands, it's actually one of the, the biggest technology companies in Europe. I think it's by market cap, it's um, the, the, the biggest tech company in Europe. Um, it's ASML, so the, the, what they actually do, they make the machines that are needed to manufacture uh, semiconductors. So this is really chips equipment. It's high, high technological. They use, for example, extreme ultraviolet light um, to really print the details uh, into, into, into a microchip. Um, so this is really about actually the equipment that you need to make um, chips, which are essential, of course. While this discussion is happening, you also write at Politico.com that it comes amid strained trade relations between the European Union and the U.S. or engage in a growing trade dispute over the Biden administration's plans to heavily subsidize investments in green industries and purchases such as American-made electric cars, which the EU sees as a protectionist measure. How much might these two issues, the chip exports or the chip technology exports to China and the subsidizing of green technology, how, how might they be intertwined, if at all? Well, I, I, that's the big question, of course, but I think that, that um, the Dutch, of course, see it as kind of a bargaining chip. Um, in Europe, at the moment, there is a lot of concern about this Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., um, that really gives a lot of subsidies uh, for for green green technologies, and and Europe is a bit concerned that um, the U.S. will outpace them, and that some industry m- might relocate to the U.S. Um, and at that moment, of course, um, they have some 
um, requests to the U.S. to 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 take their concerns uh, into account. Um, so that's their demand. But of course, uh, the demand of the U.S. to the Europe is um, about chips, and it's really about um, block the sales of advanced chip technology of certain well equipment from, for example, a company like ASML. To China. So actually, there is from both sides there is a demand to the other side, and I think you could um, you could imagine that they um, that they try to to find each other on on both fields. The 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 one thing of of course is that um, the, the 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 demand by the U.S. to the Netherlands on advanced chips technology is only to the to the Netherlands. And uh, while the, the demand from Europe to the U.S. on, on the green technologies and the subsidies is from the whole of Europe, so there is a bit of an imbalance there. But lately, however, the last days you've seen that the Netherlands is trying to evolve other countries in, in the discussion. Um, I think the Dutch trade minister said on Sunday that she's in talks with both Paris and Berlin, so France and Germany, on this topic, on the topic of uh, chips export controls. So they try to, to widen the net and to involve other countries. Peter Hawk is a technology reporter with Politico Europe. Thank you very much. Wall Street today, the Dow down 391, NASDAQ up 15, S&P down 8. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, which airs on C-SPAN Radio Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern and is available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. Another story from Reuters. Ukraine came a step closer on Tuesday to winning the fleet of modern battle tanks it hopes could turn the course of the war against Russia after the West's biggest holdout, Germany said this would be the first item on its new defense minister's agenda. Nearly 11 months after Russia invaded, Kyiv said a fleet of Western battle tanks would give its troops the mobile firepower to drive Russian troops out in decisive battles in 2023. That from Reuters. This news comes as both the United Kingdom and Poland announced it will send the modern tanks to Ukraine. The U.K.'s defense secretary, James Cleverly, was interviewed by CNN reporter Kylie Atwood today in Washington, D.C. at CSIS. Big news over the weekend with the U.K. government saying that you guys are moving ahead to provide these tanks to Ukraine. I wonder if you can take us inside that decision-making a little bit. What was the tipping point? Because the Ukrainians have obviously been asking for these tanks for a long time. So why now and when are they going to get there and what impact do you see them having on the battlefield? Well, look, we, we have always worked very, very closely with the, uh, the Ukrainians uh, and, of course, our, our NATO allies and, and the U.S. in terms of assessing what the Ukrainians need at various stages of this conflict. Uh, quite famously, in the early days of the conflict, when uh, Kyiv and other uh, cities were uh, being attacked by Russian tanks, they needed anti-tank um, missile systems, you know, the Javelins, N-Laws, and they were game-changers. As the uh, conflict evolved, as the air threat increased, uh, air defense missile systems, both ground-to-air and air-to-air, became the thing they needed the most. And then, of course, um, financial support and uh, the equipment to repair their energy infrastructure. Uh, And now what we recognize they need is the ability to push back hard in the east 
uh, and, the, and the South. And the reason that we've decided to uh, intensify our support, including those you know, very, very modern uh, NATO standard bits of heavy equipment, tanks, heavy artillery, um, uh, other armored vehicles, and the US providing Bradleys, and um, you know, NATO allies will be making decisions about what other equipment that they will be supplying and, and, and using to support the Ukrainians. It's because we need to send a really clear message. And the message we're sending to Putin, and frankly, anyone else that cares to be watching, is that we made a commitment to support the Ukrainians until they were victorious. This is what they need to get the job done. This is what we're going to supply. And we're going to supply modern, heavy military equipment and the ammunition to allow them to defend themselves properly. And what Putin should understand is we are going to have the strategic endurance to stick with them until the job is done. And the best thing that he can do to preserve the lives of his own troops is to recognize that we're going to stick with the Ukrainians until they are victorious and bring this war to a conclusion and get around the negotiating table in good faith and not, the, uh, you know, not these kind of performative things that he's been doing up until now. Because that will save lives and frankly, it will save money. Um, and so we want, to, we want to make sure Ukraine is victorious. We want to make sure that they are successful sooner rather than later. The British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly in Washington, D.C. at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The British Defense Secretary confirmed this week that in addition to the Challenger 2 tanks, Great Britain would be sending Ukraine in the coming weeks self-propelled guns known as AS-90s, plus armored vehicles, drones, missiles, and artillery rounds. Poland also stepping up to supply Ukraine with modern tanks, the German-made Leopards, and the Polish President Andrzej Duda speaking about it at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland today. Tomorrow, uh, Chancellor Schultz is speaking here. Um, Germany, um, you know, the UK has just been the first country to um, uh, send tanks uh, to Ukraine. The US is talking about sending the Abrams tanks. Um, What do you expect or hope out of this week? Will Germany send the Leopard tanks? What might happen at this Ramstein meeting of defense ministers later this week in terms of arming? Have we turned the corner in terms of giving the Ukrainians more um, offensive weapons or, um, or not? Um, uh, Five days ago, I announced uh, our decision uh, about about Leopard tanks, yes. Uh, One company of of Leopard tanks, it's about uh, 14 tanks. Uh, We we really decided to send it to, to, to Ukraine, but we hope and, and we are trying to organize uh, a, a bigger uh, support for, for Ukraine. So we hope that uh, there is a, f- a, f- a few partners, a few allies uh, um, who, 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 will, who, who, will, uh, who will give tanks to, 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 to Ukraine, Leopard tanks, Challenger tanks mm-hmm. from, from Great Britain. Yes, and, and so so I so we hope that producer of the tanks, Germany, will will also will also um, participate in 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 this. Um, in my opinion, very 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 um, good idea. 
the Polish President Andrzej Duda at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. This is the 53rd annual gathering of the forum, bringing together more than 2,700 leaders and 100, from 130 countries, the organizers say, including over 50 heads of state or government, although only one expected from a G7 country, you heard him mentioned, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. This is also the first time in a couple of years that the World Economic Forum is totally in person rather than either partly or totally remote, which was the case during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Pentagon has publicly supported these other countries' decisions to give Ukraine the powerful tanks that it wants. Today, a reporter asking the Pentagon Press Secretary, Pat Ryder, how much more weaponry the U.S. might be willing to give. Former U.S. Army Europe Commander uh, Ben Hodges tweeted recently that the U.S. should now be providing Ukraine with attackums, gray eagles, uh, small diameter bombs uh, to deny Russia the use of logistics hubs in Crimea and in, in uh, Russia and Belarus. The U.S. recently crossed the threshold in sending armored vehicles um, to help Ukraine take back territory. What's the Defense Secretary's view now on sending precision weapons with ranges of, of as much as 300 kilometers? Yeah, well, I, I think Secretary Austin's been very clear that we continue to maintain an active and ongoing dialogue with our Ukrainian partners, with the international community, on what are Ukraine's most urgent needs when it comes to the battlefield uh, and the current situation there. And so going into, for example, the contact group this week, he'll have the opportunity to have those discussions with his Ukrainian counterpart uh, and with our other allies and partners around the table to do exactly that. What are the kinds of things that Ukraine needs to be able to defend themselves and also take back their sovereign territory? So uh, as we have new announcements to make, we'll certainly be sure to pass those along. Has there been any movement on that conversation, or has it been largely in the same place as it's been? Uh, well, I think that's a matter of perspective, right? So, I mean, if you if you look at this campaign in its totality, if you would ask that question one month into the campaign, uh, so it, it's relative, right? We're going to continue to adapt and evolve uh, and, and tailor that assistance based on the situation on the ground uh, and based on the capabilities that we can get there to them quickly. So, thank you. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, who is also an Air Force Brigadier General with reporters in the Pentagon briefing room. Associated Press reporting that the Army General Mark Milley, chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, traveled to a site near the Ukraine-Poland border on Tuesday and talked with his Ukrainian counterpart face-to-face for the first time, a meeting underscoring the growing ties between the two militaries and coming at a critical time as Russia's war with Ukraine nears the one your mark, that from AP. The United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights saying in a statement on Monday that more than 7,000 civilians have died from in the war in Ukraine. Another 11,000 civilians have been injured. The First Lady of Ukraine, Elena Zelensky, speaking today at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, urging leaders and of governments and corporations, also scientists, journalists, others with influence, to use it to combat Russian aggression. And she spoke about the deadly Russian missile attack at an apartment building in the city of Dnipro. And I constantly try to convey that in Ukraine there is no place which is completely safe. And unfortunately, also, you can't take a day off from war. Everyone who is now in Ukraine has to risk his or her life every day. There is nothing of limits for Russia as we speak. 
in our city of Dnipro. People are still working on, and working uh, and sorting through the debris of a residential area of a, a house that was destroyed by an anti-ship missile. This missile was built to destroy aircraft carriers and was used against the civilian infrastructure. This morning we heard about 43 casualties. When we, since we started this forum, it grew to 43 casualties. These were people, ordinary people, at home on a Saturday. And that's enough reason for Russia to kill. And that's why the ninth point of our formula is about guaranteed non-escalation. And of course, at some point we have to pronounce an end to this war. Not only so we have a date, so that we can reset the time and start counting peacetime, because peace does not equal a truce. It's so that our people can return home, who are scattered around the world right now, so that our fathers, our mothers, sons and daughters can return from the front line, for families to reunite, the families that were torn apart by the war. Ladies and gentlemen, unity is what brings peace back. Elena Zelenska, the First Lady of Ukraine at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland today. Another speaker at the forum joining remotely, Henry Kissinger, the former U.S. National Security Advisor and Secretary of State under former Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Henry Kissinger has been opposed to Ukraine membership in NATO, but today saying that would be appropriate. I want to express my admiration for the president of Ukraine and for the heroic conduct of the Ukrainian people. When I asked them to participate in an effort which should be made by Europe and Ukraine together before this war, I was opposed to membership of Ukraine in NATO because I feared that it would start exactly the process that we are seeing now. Now that this process has reached this level, it did the idea of a neutral Ukraine under these conditions is no longer meaningful. And at the end of the process that I described, it ought to be guaranteed by NATO in whatever forms NATO can develop. But I believe Ukrainian membership in NATO would be a appropriate outcome. Henry Kissinger, who was National Security Advisor and Secretary of State under Presidents Nixon and Ford between 1969 and 77, when he dealt with the former Soviet Union, speaking today to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Henry Kissinger is 99 years old. He also told the audience that it's important to avoid an escalation of the Ukraine Russia conflict so that becomes or is perceived to be a war between Russia and Western powers. 
And also Russia must be given, he says, an opportunity to one day rejoin the international system after any peace agreement with Ukraine. This is Washington Today. President Biden welcoming to the White House the 2022 NBA basketball champions, the Golden State Warriors. And ahead of that, the team's head coach, Steve Kerr, and star point guard, Steph Curry, joining the White House press secretary at her news conference. The two mentioning public policy issues that they have been involved in. First, Steve Kerr. It's also uh, very um, fulfilling for me just a little while ago to take part in a uh, roundtable uh, on gun violence and uh, gun safety uh, with some uh, senior White House staffers, along with Clay Thompson and Moses Moody. Um, over the last hour or so, we um, learned a lot about what this administration is doing to, uh, to help um, create a safer environment in our country, uh, something that's uh, very close to my heart. And um, it's wonderful for me to, to, to learn a lot more than, than I knew. Um, so coming in today, is, uh, it's, a, it's a great day on many fronts. That was Steve Kerr in the White House briefing room. Here's Stephen Curry. Great opportunity for us uh, from the basketball community to thank um, President Biden and his staff uh, for all their hard work and diligence on uh, getting Brittany Griner home. Uh, was a big part of uh, our, our basketball family and uh, means a lot to know that she's here and home safe with her family and all the work that went on behind the scenes to make that a reality. So I uh, just want to say thank you there and uh, very excited to be here and celebrate the day, celebrate with our families and uh, appreciate the invitation. This is uh, truly, truly special. So thank you to everybody. Steph Curry in the White House briefing room ahead of the regular briefing with the press secretary. Steve Kerr also there. They later joined the rest of the Golden State Warriors with President Biden as they celebrated the 2022 NBA championship. This is the first time the Warriors have visited the White House since President Obama was in office, even though they won two championships during President Donald Trump's term. One year, President Trump rescinded an invitation. Another year, the team said they will want to focus on community service instead. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.